Hi, I'm Jackie Clydesdale. And I'm Liz Walker. And you're listening to the podcast that investigates why people love singing together, which we call choral fixation, but what we should really maybe consider calling two choir nerds trapped in a closet. <laughs> I don't know. We were launched launched in the worst year to start singing since, uh, since the invention of autotune. <laughs> Thanks, 2020. But here we are in 2021. <laughs> and we, we actually were in the middle of a three-part series on protest singing. We are digging deep into why people choose to sing at protests rather than, say, make giant puppets or lie down in the street. They do those too. Yeah, I know. Those are, those are <laughs> tactics. Those are valid tactics as well. In the introductory episode, we talked about why people sing protest songs and how protest songs come about. Yeah, we, we started by reviewing what musicologist Dan Levitin says, why people, they sync up when they sing. Um, they're breathing together and their heartbeats are beating. And there's a spiritual, physical kind of effect when we're singing together. There's a, there's a feeling and it feels great. We want to get really loud and we want to make ourselves feel big, amplify both the message and our, our feelings of togetherness. Yeah. We did kind of a, a historical overview of focusing on the European experiences in the pre-20th century. This episode, we're going to shift our focus to more recent history and to the United States and dig deep into one particular song that people sang together and continue to sing together. The song that the Library of Congress declared the most influential song of the 20th century, We Shall Overcome. Jackie, I am really excited to learn more about this song. I know it in a very vague way, I, uh, but I... If someone if someone asked you, hey, what's a protest song? What would, would you say, start? Yeah, what would you start? I would humming? say, we shall overcome. And I would, I, would, I would hum the first couple of bars and then I'd be like, I guess I don't really know it. <laughs> it kind of peters out from there, yeah. <laughs> you That's lose right. steam pretty quickly. Yeah. That's right. And uh, I mean, we've been talking about... We've been talking about this for months and months, and you've been you've been working on this, and it's it's been really tricky. It's been it's been hard for you to research, hey? Oh man, this song, <laughs> honestly, it has a thousand and one ancestors. You know, a lot of composite parts. They all came together eventually over the course of 150 to 200 ish years. <laughs> uh, that is a really long time to write one song. <laughs> I know. It's evidence of the folk tradition at work, though, right? Right. Yeah, kind of distilling from the culture rather than just from one person. That's right. Like an oral tradition then, where we've got music and lyrics kind of being passed down, like around a campfire, like on a guitar kind of a thing? <laughs> sort of, yeah. I mean, in this case, it was through churches and union meetings and schools. But yeah, like, and by more conventional means, too, There, there is sheet music for mm. both We Shall Overcome and the songs that came before it. Mm. But ultimately, what happens is, it all combines to create a song that delivers the kind of emotional punch that only comes from a 200-year wind-up. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you, you don't get this kind of effect without, you know, a long and storied history. Right. But look, I'm only right. going to be able to touch on some of this. I want to be really clear. But here's something I really want everybody to keep in mind as they listen to this story. And that is, why did people sing this song? Why did We Shall Overcome Endure? And what does it mean to people, both then and now? We shall So We Shall Overcome 
is an amalgamation. It's a it's an old school mashup. It's a dance hall remix of about <laughs> of about seven or eight ish different religious hymns and songs. The two main songs that really provide the backbone for We Shall Overcome are I'll Be Alright and O Sanctissima. A Catholic hymn that goes all the way back to 1790, which surprised me. Um, in fact, I've even sung an arrangement of it, and it is almost note for note, We Shall Overcome. So like the bum, 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 You got bum, it. Bum, you got bum, it. Bum, so right. let's, let's take a listen to it right now. It's also known as the Sicilian Mariner's Hymn. I love that name. I want to see that tattooed on somebody. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this one morphed into a bunch of different hymns, including a German Christmas carol called Oh, How Joyful. So there, like, it took a lot of like twists and turns since 1790. So yeah, O Sanctissima was about, it was in churches, but I recently watched a great YouTube story about the history of We Shall Overcome by a guy named Jeannie Dees. We'll link to it in the show notes. Something mm-hmm. I did not know is one of the methods of transmission. So we've talked about churches. Something that did not occur to me. Liz, did you know that during the Civil War, between battles, army bands would play music? Wait, like at, like at a football game? Kind of. So like big pitched battle. Everybody retreats to take a little break and, you know. And there's a halftime show? And there's a halftime show, yes. Oh, my God. For each side. Both sides had army bands. Yeah. When you think about it, armies have bands. There's always a player. Uh, I I never really questioned why they had the army band. I thought it was just to put their energy towards something other than killing and maiming. Sure. And so what's really interesting about this is that one... Northern Carolina Regiment had O Sanctissima in its repertoire. <gasps> oh, wow. So that could be a direct link then of how yep. it got from churches out into like the wider public. Well, not that the wider public wasn't going to church, but like got into the idea of struggle. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh my God, that's amazing. That's so cool. I'm, I'm like gripping my forehead. I'm like, I, yep. like it's because my mind has been blown. <laughs> Okay, that's saying, oh, Sanctissima, what is this I'll Be All Right song? Okay, so I'll Be All Right is a song that it's a lot more removed into the folk tradition. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's an old Baptist gospel song of sort of unknown provenance. I mean, it's just been around for a long time. In 1930, it was recorded for the first time, but it had been around for much longer than that. And and what are the, like, the lyrics of it are? Well, they're all over the place, but okay. essentially it's, I'll be all right someday. I'll be all right. This is a hymn that's still sung today. So let's listen to I'll Be All Right by the Angelic Gospel Singers. A lot of the small churches back in like the 1800s were at the forefront of social change. They were explicitly abolitionists, temperance societies, suffragettes, things like that. They were involved in all of those sorts of things. And there was lots of, just as musically the tune was evolving, um, there were lots of ideas that also evolved 
I was thinking that, I mean, funnily enough, I think a lot of those churches are Protestant churches. You know, those small little Protestant churches that are always breaking off to fight with each other about, like, different points of... Theology, uh, the finer points of theology, sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who's a Baptist pastor, and he says that if you have 12 Baptist churches, you've got 13 opinions. There is a circulation of ideas in these Protestant churches, and there's obviously there's a circulation of music as well. You know, you just can't keep a good tune down. Yeah, for sure. You can't. You cannot. It starts with the Catholics, but the Protestants get the last word. (laughs) The genesis for the lyrics came from a song, and that song was I Will Overcome Someday. I Will Overcome Someday. Okay. Not We Will Overcome Yet. It was written by a Black Methodist preacher named Charles Albert Tindley. He was a fascinating human being. He was born in 1851 in Maryland. He was born free, but he grew up around enslaved people. As an adult, he moved to Philadelphia, and he worked in an unpaid position in a Methodist church. While he was there, he decided he wanted to become a pastor. So he went to a local synagogue and asked them to teach him Hebrew. Oh, wow. And Yeah. And he took a correspondence course to learn Greek. He's completely self-taught. Wow. He asked for help with the Hebrew, but he <laughs> but he had no formal education before that. And he wow. sat the exams to become a, a minister, I guess. And he goes back to preach at the church where he originally was working as an unpaid uh, deacon. Wow. So, yeah, they call him one of the fathers of gospel music. And he wrote a song called uh, Stand By Me. Which absolutely becomes, morphs into, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sometimes known as Stand By Me Father. It's a traditional gospel song. um, And it absolutely influenced the 1950s, um, you know, sort of pop music version. So that's one of his famous songs. Mm. And then the other one was I Will Overcome Someday. Clearly, he was overcoming. He overcame an incredible amount to be rewarded by his Lord (laughs) and his own hard work, right? (laughs) Amazing. So, okay, so I Will Overcome Someday. When did that song come out? It was published in 1900. I want to absolutely reinforce that it's not like the song we know. it's It's not the we shall overcome yet. I'm going to let Pete Seeger talk a little bit about this because he makes a distinction between song, the song that was sung fast and the song that was sung slow. So I'll be all right, he says. Well, here, let's hear what Pete has to say, and he'll give you a little sense of what I'll be all right sounds like versus I will overcome. About four years ago, I sent a book, and there was a Xerox copy of a letter in the United Mine Workers Journal of February 1909. And... The letter on the front page says, last year in our strike, we started every strike meeting with a prayer and singing that good old song, We Will Overcome. Now, the, the song which they brought it from was usually sung now as I'll be all right. I'll be all right, I'll be all right, I'll be all right someday. If in my heart, I do not yield, or deep in my heart I do believe, I'll be all right someday. I'll be like him, I'll be like him. I'll wear the crown, I'll wear the crown. And the verse, I'll overcome, I'll overcome. So somewhere along the line, some union member changed it to, we will overcome. Now whether they sang it that fast or they slowed it down, then I don't know, the newspaper article didn't say. That was amazing that like the I'll be all right was really the the body of the verses. Yeah. And what I really enjoy hearing is him clapping along and having it have that very different feel. Much more joyful pickup. Yeah. 
bit of a gospel vibe, I guess, there, too. So interesting. In 1945, two men, Atron Twig and Kenneth Morris, they were choral arrangers. They wrote the melody that we recognize today Mm -hmm. in 1945 in Charleston, South Carolina. There's a group of tobacco workers on strike, a group of mostly black women who are part of the tobacco workers union. And they're on strike for five months. It's pretty it's a pretty long one and it's cold and it's wet. Every day, they were led by a woman named Lucille Simmons singing, We Will Overcome. And they wanted, you know, obviously they wanted to say, We Will Overcome and, you know, represent their cooperative action on the picket line. Right. Okay. So then you think that that version of that music and those lyrics must have been floating around before Twig and Morris published. So clearly after 1900, so after Charles Albert Tindley Mm -hmm. and before the tobacco workers strike. Mm -hmm. We Shall Overcome was around. It was around. It was part of pickets. It was part of union meetings. It was being sung maybe a bit fast, maybe a bit slow. And it wasn't We Shall. It -hmm. was probably more likely either I'll be all right or I will overcome. Right. Well, okay. So how did it wind up being sung at the tobacco strike? All right. So there's a couple different versions of this story. Of course. There is. Of course. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Zilphia Horton. Zilphia Horton was a lady who she was a real life daughter of a coal miner. Um, oh. She was singing uh, in 1945 when she was she was the head of something called the Highlander School in Tennessee. Now, the Highlander School is fascinating and deserves its own show. But essentially what it was was a school for music that focused primarily on folk music, but also sort of radicalizing efforts. So they hosted workshops and taught union leaders how to organize protests and recruit members, and it taught people songs and how to share them with their membership. The idea was to foster community and to, to ultimately to make striking more effective. Oh. So Zilphia, the story goes that Zilphia, uh, who I should point out is a white lady, she also can I just say she's got an amazing name. She's got an amazing name, and we just saw an amazing picture of her, and she had very fashion-forward bangs for 1945. Yeah, and <laughs> so Zilphia, so she either went to the protest with you know Lucille Simmons and the striking women of the tobacco union, or some of their members went to Highlander. And brought it back to her. Exactly. So sometime after that, like in the late 40s or into the early 50s, someone at Highlander or Pete Seeger, who was definitely there and around, changed the will to Shell. That is like sort of gradually how I will overcome someday became we shall overcome. Right. I will overcome. We shall overcome. Okay. One of the quotes about that uh, was something like a a musical historian um, who had written about Pete Seeger said, this is exactly the kind of thing he did. He loved to noodle on these kind of things and make like 
what he called micro changes, not the, the musical critic, not Pete Seeger. I don't think Pete Seeger would have called them micro changes. Um, See what I did there? That was a micro. That's what I call a micro change. Uh, to songs to make them more singable all the time. So uh, right. one of the things that's been pointed out about this is that will and shall will is a very sort of short vowel sound and shall forces you to open your mouth and sing it sort of bigger and louder. Right. Okay. We will. And then we shall. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Yeah. So it's more unifying. I think that goes back to some of the stuff that we talked about when we talked about Dan Levitin and getting people to sing together effectively to be louder and bigger and take up more space. And I think, I think shall has, is just a slightly elevated verb. Yeah. 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 It's a little biblical. Yeah. We shall. That's right. I mean, that is really interesting. It's that iterative approach of like taking feedback, looking and seeing what's working, going mm-hmm. back, noodling, making new micro changes. Mm-hmm. It's really art in a really practical kind of sense. Mm-hmm. It's 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 not it's I don't think it's a way that we think about the relationship of art and artists. We don't think of them as sort of making making lots of little changes to things. We think of it as like something comes out perfect. That's right. And I think, too, it's not the way we think about something like a protest song, because a protest song is somehow supposed to be this natural explosion from the heart of like incredibly passionate feeling that, you know, we all just magically come together. And and instead, this was like a couple of like very conscious choices, a couple, several very conscious choices to tweak and make this song work for that context. In 1957, Pete Seeger plays it at a concert, and Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks are in the audience, and the song gets to boost. More and more people come to Highlander to workshop and to organize for civil rights at this point, because before it was a little bit more focused on union. Like the labor stuff, like the tobacco workers, right, of course. But it's in the late 50s that things start to take a big swing more in the realm of civil rights. And MLK himself, comes to Highlander, hears the song, and apparently, I mean, I I loved this quote, uh, hummed it for the rest of the day to himself, and then said to someone, you know, that song really sticks with you, it really haunts you, and I I think that's really lovely, especially in light of the fact of he quoted it in his final sermon, yeah, just before he was was murdered. A few days later, 50,000 people sang it at his funeral. So... It really did embed itself in the hearts of a lot of people who were fighting during that time. That was that was almost 10 years later, of course, so I don't want to completely elide over that. And in fact, I want to take right. a quick detour before we before we get to the, the sort of culmination. Yeah, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the late 50s, early 60s, when uh, one of the people who was involved in the Highlander school, a guy named Guy Carawan. I, I don't know how to say his name. <laughs> Every that time it comes exactly roll off the tongue. It does not. I always want to say, first of all, of course, having grown up in Eastern Canada, I want to call him Guy. I think his name's Guy Carowan. And in the spring of 1960, there are a lot of civil rights actions and protests throughout the South. Mm-hmm. And there are students from colleges and universities and high schools even around Nashville 
doing protests where they go to lunch counters. So in Nashville, black people and people of color could not sit at certain lunch tables, like like lunch counters, like a like a, a Woolworths or whatever. Yeah, right? and they go in and sit down and order lunch. What comes out of this is an album. It's called The Nashville Sit-In Story, Songs and Scenes of Nashville Lunch Counter Desegregation by the Sit-In Participants. And it's available. It, it, you can you can listen to it online. You can listen to it on YouTube or on Spotify. It's from the it's from Folkways recordings from the Smithsonian. Yeah, I listened to it, and it is just astonishing. It's amazing to listen to. I I didn't know what to expect, but there were so many things about the the way that they were like it is like this wild audio of people in the jails, and they're like they're smack talking each other and stuff, and. Uh, it was just, it was very charming, but also felt really, felt really wild. Yeah. Well, I mean, y- you know that that's a recreation though, right? Oh my God. Like that's not actually taking place. I mean, Guy Carwin carried around his recording equipment and absolutely recorded like man on the street interviews and things like that. But those, those bits in the. The bits. Yeah. The bits kind of. Yeah. Are you like telling the, me that they're not real? <laughs> They're recreated. They're recreated. Yeah. Because they, they feel really like, I honest, I thought that they were 100% real. So it was like they were trying to, I guess it'd be dangerous maybe to, have, yeah. you know, you wouldn't get yeah. good. Yeah. So they were trying to like make it kind of real yeah. sound. There are scenes of them at, I found the scenes of them at the lunch counters having people scream at them, horrible abuse. I found that incredibly moving and I was really upset thinking that that's what they were. It turns out that they actually re-recorded that just to give us the sense that we were there. And then there's there's that beautiful haunting recording of We Shall Overcome in the jail. Well, or maybe not in the jail. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it, it's very echoey. It sounds now. like they're in a drum, in a metal yes. drum. <laughs> yes, exactly. They may have decided to to lean into a drum and sing it to give you that echoey feeling, but it is gorgeous. And I would highly recommend anybody listening right now to give it a chance because it is, it's really beautiful. So the Nashville sit-in story was conceived by Guy Carawan, was co-written with one of the leaders of the Nashville Christian Leadership Council, a guy called the Reverend Vivian. Some of the students involved include Candy Anderson, Peggy Alexander, Diane Nash, and two famous names that jumped out at me, Marion Barry, who would go on to be the mayor of Washington, D.C., and John Lewis, who would go on to be... Um, a senator, no, not a senator, a congressman from uh, Georgia. Amazing. Um, so what was the idea behind the record? I mean, like, what was this? It's, it's such an odd thing to do. What were they What were they trying to achieve? I think, honestly, it's supposed to take you right there. 
that's the thing. Because I really think like it fits in with the thesis that we've been discussing so far is that strategy, tactics to win hearts and minds, mm. these students and these civil rights leaders thought, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to make our voices bigger? You can make your voices bigger by A, leaning into a drum and singing, <laughs> but B, by re recording it and then passing out that recording. Right. Getting it into the record shops and then the kids right. are looking at it and saying, what's this? And then taking it home and. Sure. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I was thinking when I was listening to this track was something that I don't think had ever occurred to me before, but imagining what it would have been like as one of those people at the counter, as one of those jailers, as one of one of the people who are opposing the students, what it would be like to hear people singing that? That's right. I mean, we always we always imagine ourselves as the singers, right? Like? Yeah. We don't imagine ourselves as the listeners. And I would say we also being the kind of people we are, we envision ourselves as the resistors, not the oppressors. What does what it does feel like is it sounds like a church. It sounds like, you know, there's three-part harmony in there, and it sounds like a song that you would hear in church. So, if you've got, if you're if you're a hateful person, and then you hear something like that, I can't imagine like, right? It must just transport you. It, it would calm you down at least a little bit. Or, you know, strike a little terror into the heart of someone who's on the wrong side of history, right? Right. I mean, that's right. the hope. So one thing I really want to highlight here is that the underpinnings of We Shall Overcome are religious and that that religiosity is part of the reason for its popularity mm. and, as a tactic, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to read a quote from the Reverend Andrew Young, who worked with Dr. King. And a couple of years after his death, he talked about how the religious stories that people would have known and understood and been intimately familiar with, why those were used as the language for struggle, for helping people to understand the struggle that they were in. Young explained that King and other preachers developed a language and mobilizing strategy based on the religious inclinations and understandings of local people. Nobody could have ever argued segregation and integration and gotten people convinced to do anything about that, Young recalled. But when Martin would talk about leaving the slavery of Egypt and wandering in the wilderness of separate but equal and moving into a promised land, somehow that made sense to folk. And they may not have understood it, it was probably nobody else's political theory, but it was their grassroots ideology. It was their faith. It was the thing they had been nurtured on. That quote was from Sit In, Stand Up and Sing Out, Black Gospel Music and the Civil Rights Movement. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Well, this is Choral Fixation. It is a podcast about people singing together. And today we are talking about people singing We Shall Overcome. It's an epic journey. It is an epic journey. Come along. So I think this is a really good time to tell uh, a story about the song. Uh, so in 1959, uh, Highlander was hosting a workshop the cops broke in. They were conducting some kind of raid for no apparent reason. Mm -hmm. You know, who knows? Mm -hmm. They cut the power so everyone was in the dark. Okay. And this is this is the story of how we got an extra an extra verse, um, and probably one of the most haunting verses of "We Shall Overcome." And there's a teenage girl who was sitting in the darkness, and she says, "We are not afraid." And everyone started singing, "We shall overcome with." We are not afraid, creating a new verse. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. 
and it's it's totally in the dark and a cop comes into the room and he says his voice is shaking if you got to sing do, do you have to sing so loud and the crowd wow yeah and the crowd started singing louder right because they understood right then that they had they had some power that they could exert and the guys with the guns and the billy clubs were were unnerved by it right right wow yeah this is taken with uh from an interview with a, a young girl named Jamila Jones mm-hmm. and she was there she was she was 14 at the time and she was there with a group of her friends and they were all about the same age mm-hmm. and there were kids there and right oh my goodness it's not super clear whether she started singing it or if it was a young woman named Mary Dozier it was a really a really powerful moment it's very cinematic yeah like the way it, it feels like it, it it feels like it's been in a movie, even though I don't think I've ever seen that. I don't think I've seen that moment in a movie, but it feels very cinematic. Just that. I mean, it is that sort of spontaneous moment that we're, we've been talking about. Yeah, but actually, I told you the story that way specifically to set you up a bit, Walker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, sorry, man. Uh, you know, white culture has this romantic notion of black people singing through their pain and and joining arm in arm with with good whites and being allies and sometimes we we eat that up with a spoon and i think ultimately we have to remember that can be harmful right right because what you're describing means that um a person a person with a problem say they can't vote um has to appeal to their oppressor's emotions that's right that's right in and... order to in order to lobby for change and that's not fair. <laughs> no, it's not. And we know that over and over again, the people who are in the position to appeal to their oppressors are tone policed constantly and told, oh, mm. well, you don't don't say it that way, say it this way. So the folks right. sitting in the dark were there to learn. They were specifically there to like workshop together, teach each other, learn from each other, to confront racism and violence. And those teenage girls were singing uh, they were, uh, sorry, they were actually singers with the mm. Montgomery Gospel Trio. They traveled from town to town at community fundraisers for the NAACP and groups like oh, that. Oh, yeah. so they were, they were teenage girls, but they were, they were singing prose. That's really. right. Yeah. They had a playbook and they, they used it. When black people organize and strategize, white culture has a tendency to dismiss it as politics. Just politics. Just politics. And as soon as a white person hears like, oh, well, NBA players have decided to bring politics into sports or NFL. Right. Of course. Yeah. Right. And so everything gets thrown out. Well, and you know, to take it a little bit further, like nobody wants to hear about grassroots work. Yeah, exactly. Like all those videos of people doing magical, you know, things with their with music out on the streets. Like no one wants to hear about the photocopying and the songbooks and making phone calls and sending emails to get people out onto the streets to make That's sure right. that the media is there. And frankly, I mean, how much of that work is usually done by women? That's right. And I, I really want to make this point. The white allies are very complicated. They're they're from the north a lot of the time. They're communists or socialists. They you like mean, you folk mean the music. Civil, the civil rights allies. Yeah, yeah those. they're working together, but the power lines get very tangled up, right? They, right. they, there are some aspects where someone like Guy Carawan, who is so into something sounding natural and 
primitive and the, right. the 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 organic sound of and it's like yeah, we're getting into some problematic territory, right? Like right. all that black and white TV news footage of people walking arm in arm, it didn't happen by accident. It didn't. It's not something that happened spontaneously. We really need to interrogate how it happened, where it came from, what we expect from protest music, and keeping in mind things like what white culture wants from the story. The you know what I mean? The, right. What they impose on it. Right. Right. Of course. And when white culture demands that protest, you know, moves hearts in particular ways, mm-hmm. um, that sympathy can be fickle, right? And and gets bored right. or gets offended easily. And it's like, ugh, you're not saying it right. Right, 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 right. I don't like I don't like the way you're demanding things. That's right. right. Exactly. Yeah, I don't like that note. That note's a little too sharp. <laughs> yeah. To use a meta- to use a metaphor. Mm. All right. So back to back to we shall overcome. Okay. So the song's becoming famous throughout the late 50s and 60s. Um, Don't Baez is singing it at concerts. That's one of the main ways that it spreads, actually, I would say, through um, with white people is at folk music concerts. Oh, the folk music festivals Mm. of the, yeah, of course, of the early 60s. I mean, folk music was was a big thing. That's right. Exactly. All right, so at this point, We Shall Overcome is pretty famous. Mm. And members of the Highlander School ended up with the copyright in 1964. I think it was Guy Carowin. Guy, jeez, I did it again. (laughs) Guy Carowin, Pete Seeger. There's like three or four people. They all ended up with a copyright. Oh, no. Uh, uh, Yeah. How did they wind up with a copyright on a song that they did not write? (laughs) So the Highlander School were told, like, look, if you don't put a copyright on this somebody in hollywood is going to do it somebody's going to come in and put it in a commercial you know otherwise do you know what i mean use it as the theme use it as the theme song for a protest music themed sitcom oh. or something ridiculous we shall overcome acne indigestion yes absolutely so they wanted to protect the song the, the lawyers recommended that sure, okay. you rec- protect this song. And what they did was they directed all proceeds towards the freedom movement. Any of the money that came in for performing it in an official capacity where royalties were collected, the money went to support um, young Black artists. I mean, I understand and it makes sense when we describe it like that. But they just erased the work of all the Black people who actually created that song. That's absolutely correct. Which is weird because through <laughs> Highlander, the Highlander people did obviously want to redirect this music um, back, uh, redirect the profits from the music mm-hmm. back into the community because they did that. They'd helped people establish copyright for their own songs. So they knew it was important. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they believed the song was kind of a true folk song with no traceable origin. Right. So they tried to protect it the only way they well, let's be honest. They tried to protect it the only way white people know how to do. Oh, just, yeah, right. Put some money. Well, they sure have a way of ruining things. <laughs> Listen, speaking of which. Um, oh, no. <laughs> Lyndon, Lyndon B. Johnson quoted the song when he signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964, which, you know, that's good. Okay. Lended some okay. legitimacy, I guess. But when he quoted it, he said, like, you know, poverty, racism, we shall overcome. And Mm. in the end, that was kind of 
kind of like the beginning of the end for We Shall Overcome as cultural right. moment. Yeah. A cultural thing. Yeah. Right. And, and I read a, it jumped the shark. Yes, kind of. <laughs> I read a quote where basically like, oh, uh, the sheet music that was put out, you know, with We Shall Overcome in it, and mm-hmm. you could learn to play on the piano or on your guitar or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, they started printing pictures of LBJ on the front. Ooh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so it kind of. <laughs> You can, that can't be right no, exactly <laughs> somebody would look at that and be like oh no i i was hoping for the song about protesting the <laughs> i want the one that the young attractive people are saying yeah, exactly so that was kind of part of the decline right so that's like mm-hmm. the mid 60s things really start to shift and oh, right. by 1970 a lot of the vibe in terms of the way the civil rights movement was progressing was you know people were getting quite and understandably so uh, disenchanted with some things they weren't interested mm. in waiting around arm in arm well i mean of course i mean they martin luther king was assassinated in, in 1968 that's right. so that's right and so uh, malcolm x um so many of their leaders so why yeah why bother appealing to people's hearts and minds anymore that's right yeah mm. in his 1972 book pete seeger admitted that the song had become passe he was just like oh. yeah his friend mm. lillian hellman the playwright had a really great quote, Lynn's, uh, that's a You have to say it in a Lillian Hellman oh, voice. Oh, yes. What kind of <laughs> namby-bamby, wishy-washy moaning always someday, someday. That has been said for 2,000 years. Yeah. That's Boring. Boring. Exactly. exactly. Lillian Hellman was oh, over no. it. But oh, uh, she, had a, she had a point. <laughs> this very right. arch lady had a point. Um, yeah. Namby-pamby, wishy-washy, always moaning. Mm. So the song remained firmly in that category in the boomer nostalgia uh, until in, I would say, in the latter part of the 20th century, some some filmmakers in Hollywood, some black filmmakers, wanted to start to address some of the myths of the 60s. Uh, one in particular would be uh, Lee Daniels. He did a movie called The Butler. This was about three or four years ago. Yeah. And the filmmakers wanted to use We Shall Overcome in it sounds very reasonable (laughs) but in uh i guess it was about i guess it's a little longer ago than that it was like 2012 they started to film i guess and the song was in copyright so they had to pay a hundred thousand dollars to use a portion of the song for the movie yeah which considering the role of the song in the civil rights movement the enfranchisement of black voters and their human rights. It, it just feels so wrong and so exploitative, right? That song belongs to the people. The money did go to the Highlander yes. school, right? It just, just get, does get And it dis- gets redistributed. redistributed. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh-huh. yeah. Okay, yeah. But, sure. but I guess I guess the thing, though, is that, like, if those well-meaning white people at Highlander hadn't put the song in copyright then mm-hmm. yeah that's just it, it would, yeah so lee daniels was not the only one there was also someone making a documentary about the authorship of we shall overcome <laughs> <sighs> so they banded together and launched a lawsuit mm-hmm. asking for the song to be stripped of copyright and in a couple of rulings the latest one was in 2018 the courts agreed that the song lacked originality Ooh, ah, yeah <laughs> And the publisher, Ludlow Music, spent a lot of money and time trying to retain the copyright and spent more money fighting it in recent years than they'd actually even generated in royalties. So, yeah. So that money wasn't going. 
No, exactly. That's ultimately, that's exactly right. The whole thing really illustrates the problem we have with our models of art and property and consumption. They, they just don't serve this kind of art or the people who wield it. Quick aside, very quick. I just want to say that that documentary that was being made about the controversial like origin, alternate mm-hmm. origin story, there's some real credence to that. That the There's now some, some evidence that the lyrics for We Shall Overcome actually were in fact derived, at least in part, from uh, Louise Shropshire's hymn, If My Jesus Wills. Oh. And she had a direct connection with Dr. King. And even Pete Seeger said that uh, she may very well have taught that song to Zilphia Horton, too. <gasps> yeah, yeah. That song, her song was written sometime between 1932 and 42 and then copyrighted in 1954. Now, things are a little sticky because clearly Reverend Albert Tindley's song was around. <laughs> I'll Be All Right was around. There's other things going on. And uh, Louise Shropshire uh, Reverend Shropshire actually codified things and took a much more traditional route to establishing her own copyright. And a couple of years ago, even though she passed away in the 90s, a couple of years ago, there was a case declared in her favor and her uh, estate was awarded some money. You know, it uh, it makes me think that if Zilphia Horton hadn't died suddenly and tragically, uh, we would actually know a lot more about yeah, that song. That's right. Exactly. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about the song becoming passe is that, you know, just different forms of expression are moving into the forefront. And but the song retained its cachet, even if it was no longer like a living vessel for everybody's hopes and 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 for a struggle it still retained that idea because i just happened to come across that quote where chuck d from public enemies said that fight the power was for him we shall overcome huh 25 years on yeah everything kind right. of becomes we shall overcome right but it, it means that he saw his song as having that power and that kind of energy and that kind of mm, momentum mm-hmm. and, and that potential but but if his song is now has that potential it means that we shall overcome itself maybe didn't have that potential anymore mm-hmm. to to move people and electrify people and and express what was really being felt so that makes me think about the ways in which the overall zeitgeist can shift and change in terms of how these movements operate right right uh reverend jesse jackson i believe tried to get people to sing we shall overcome in ferguson really the crowd didn't go for it, just not going for yeah. it, because that's not how they're feeling. That's right. That's not what they want to express. I think the best way to sum that up would be to leave the last words to Malcolm X and what he said about We Shall Overcome. Anytime you're living in the 20th century, 1964, and you're walking around here singing We Shall Overcome, the government has failed. This is part of what's wrong with you. You do too much singing. Today it's time to stop singing and start swinging. I think this is the only time we'll ever end the show with a suggestion that you stop singing. (laughs) That's a good reminder that um, there isn't one version of the civil rights movement. That's right. And there's not one tactic. Right. Yeah, that's right. What I'm so interested is where this is going to go, because if We Shall Overcome has fallen away Mm -hmm. in the past 20 years, 
protest hasn't fallen away. Protest has stepped up. Yep, absolutely. In, in 2020, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, we saw people on the streets and we want, and I want to know, and I know you want to know, what were people singing if they were singing? Right, exactly. What did the tactics look like? How have they yep. shifted? Musically, mm -hmm. obviously. We're interested in the impulse that people have to sing with each other and to make themselves bigger and feel calm or to make themselves feel, you know. Safer. That's right. Yeah. And Safer. to make broadcast their message and, and make them seem louder. We're going to pick up on a thread, which is the song I'll Be All Right, and follow it through to the 21st century and Kendrick Lamar's All Right. I can't wait to hear where that goes. Thank you so much for joining us today on Choral Fixation. This is the podcast about people singing together. Our episode was written, produced, and edited by Liz Walker and Jackie Clydesdale. Our show notes include the books, the authors, the songs that we talked about. We owe a lot of gratitude to Elizabeth Cooper Davis, whose dissertation from Harvard, Making Movement Sounds, the cultural organizing behind the freedom songs of the civil rights movement, was totally key to opening our eyes to understanding protest music. She tells the story of that Highlander raid with the little girl singing in the dark. And she's the one who sort of breaks mm -hmm. it open. She totally broke that open and let us see it from a different perspective and helped us to challenge our own ideas about what protest singing is, can be, and how it comes about, how it is realized in the world. It's not magic, people. It's not magic. Stay tuned for our next episode in the series about protest music, where we are going to talk to some of the people who are behind the sound of protests today. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, uh, at Coral underscore fixation, or you can email us at coralfixations at gmail.com and let us know what you think of the show. Subscribe and like wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you. Thanks. Join us, won't you? <laughs> Thanks, Karina Longworth. I say that to my children. Dinner's on. Join us, won't you? <laughs> but yeah. Are we have a macaroni? It's funny. We're having the history of Liz Taylor and Richard Burton's incredible romance tonight at Liz's house for dinner. This is the leftover and forgotten meal you didn't eat last night. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.